For those of you who may be visiting or here for the first time and our guests, we've been going through the book of Ruth, and we conclude that book today. And uh, everyone who regularly comes to First Baptist has read the book of Ruth recently, right? Everyone who regularly comes to First Baptist has read Ruth recently, right? Right? All right, that's good. Last week we left off Boaz and Ruth early in the morning as Ruth headed home to Naomi and as Boaz left to go to Bethlehem. Boaz had promised not to rest until he resolved the matter of Naomi and her property. On his way into town, he had gotten his administrator out of bed early, telling her, you need to call these men, and she, gave, he was, she was given a list. Boaz arrived first at the gate of Bethlehem, taking up his usual place. He sat down, and just as he was sitting down, the close relative arrived. His heart picked up. Trying to sound as calm as possible, he waved and said, My friend, my friend, come on over here. Sit down with me. One by one, the men his administrator called all arrived at the gate, and he motioned them together around him. He turned to the close relative. Naomi is back from Moab, and she wants to sell Elimelech's property. I thought you should know about it and buy it today because the witnesses are here. You are the first in line for it, and if you want to purchase it, do so. If you don't, let me know. I'm the next in line. Be glad to, was the close relative's response. Let's do it. Boaz breathed in deeply and said slowly, By the way, just in case you didn't know, on the day you buy the property, you also take Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, so that the name of the dead and the property can remain together. Boaz was holding his breath now, watching closely. What was next would determine his future and possibly break his heart. Really, questioned the close relative. If I have to take Ruth, I cannot buy the property because that would endanger my children. You're next in line. Go ahead. Purchase the property. I cannot do it. Boaz tried to not react too quickly, so he waited and slowly exhaled. Well, well, I, I suppose I could do it. More waiting. Go ahead, Boaz. You know you can afford it. Buy it. And with that, he took off his shoe and handed it to Boaz says, and said, Go ahead. And the deal was sealed. Boaz could hardly contain himself. He took the shoe. He turned to the ten men gathered around him and said, Today you are witnesses that I have purchased the property of Elimelech from Naomi and from Kilion and Malon. I also have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, so that his name will not disappear from the family and from his village. You are witnesses, and everyone agreed. The deal was done. 
Boaz had kept his promise. Everyone wished him well. They said things like, May the woman in your house be like Rachel and Leah. May you build up Israel. May you live long and prosper, Boaz. May you have as many kids as Perez. You know how many he had. And with that, the men all stood up and hugged him and kissed him, and they left the city gate. So, Boaz and Ruth were married. They made love. Ruth became pregnant. A baby boy was born. The women of Bethlehem came to see. They came to see Naomi as she held the baby on her lap. And they named him Obed. And everyone praised God for providing for Naomi and Ruth security and joy and a future. And did you know that Obed was King David's grandpa? My parents were both born and raised here in Southern California, in Glendale and Highland Park, so my mom is a true city girl. Imagine the pain in her life when she, because my dad took a job in a mission, when she moved to Kansas City, Missouri. Imagine the greater pain in her life when she moved to the Ozarks of Missouri and literally lived in a log cabin with no running water and an outdoor toilet, an outhouse. The pain was pretty significant. In fact, she has told me, I would have divorced your father at that time, but I had no money to get out of here and get back to L.A. (laughs) And it was true. I'm not even sure she had a phone. It was rural, very rural. Well, my mother, being uh, a true lady, decided her children uh, would be harmed immeasurably if they actually went to school there in Warsaw, Missouri, especially high school. So somehow she arranged for her oldest son not to go to that school, but rather to go to the Stony Brook School for Boys on Long Island, New York, a college preparatory school. And so he did. But after three years of being there and three years of being away from home at age 16, his heart was so homesick and there was such stress on the family to get him there financially that he quit and went home and graduated from the very school that his mother tried to keep him from going to, Warsaw High School. What would have happened had he stayed at Stony Brook School for boys and gotten a diploma from there? And my folks had prayed, scholarships had been given, a lot of money had been spent. It currently costs $31,000 a year to go to Stony Brook. Where was God in all this? What went on there? What what was happening? By the way, at that high school, Warsaw High School, there was a sassy little basketball cheerleader that he met and married, and they had three sons and two grandsons and two granddaughters. And Joyce, my wife and I, have often talked about what would have happened had I not quit Stony Brook and gone on and gotten the diploma there. There are very few things in life I regret as I look back over my life. But one of them is, why did I quit? Why didn't I stay at Stony Brook and get that diploma? 
because since then I've gone to lots of schools and every school I go to I measure by the education I received at Stony Brook School for Boys. It was the best school I ever went to. But would I trade a diploma from Stony Brook for Joyce? I don't think so. I don't think so. Where was God in all of that? How was God working in my life? How has God been working in my life? This morning, I want to ask you to find in your worship folder um, that outline of where we're going today. And I'm going to ask you to jot down a couple of things there. Because we're done with the book of Ruth, and you've already read it, so I don't need to take a long time talking about Ruth, right? Oh, I guess I can take a long time. I don't need to take a long time talking about Ruth, right? Right, I thought so. What I'd like to do, this is an amazing story, Ruth. It's about three people, Naomi, who's mentioned, I think, 21 times, Ruth, who's mentioned about half as often, and Boaz. And they're all great people, key characters. But you realize as you read the book of Ruth, nobody ever goes to church or temple. There's no worship service there. There there are no prayers in Ruth. Uh, God is mentioned, of course, but there's nothing really religious going on there. They're not reading their Bibles. They don't sacrifice. Um, There are no commandments to follow in the book of Ruth. So, So why the book of Ruth? What's it there for? Well, as you read the book of Ruth, although it never says this in Ruth, you realize, wow, these things turn out pretty well, don't they? It's a, it's a great story. And this morning, as you have read this book and we have become familiar with the story, my hope is that you will ask questions, not about the book of Ruth anymore, but your own life. Where is God in my life? And as you look back over your life at the highs and lows, that you'll, you'll begin to wonder, well, where was God then? Where was God here and there? Because that's really the goal of the book of Ruth, to cause you to reflect on your life and see where God has been active for good in your life. So I just want to share a couple things. And the first one is this from the book of Ruth. Life is a mixture of complaint and celebration. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and just say to him or her, Are you complaining today or celebrating? Would you just ask? Be honest. We're in church. It's okay. Daniel, are you complaining today or celebrating? Celebrating. Okay. Now, let me read two verses from you. They're going to be on the screen here or read them for you. Uh, The first verse is from the, the end of the first chapter. This is after disaster has happened to Naomi. Her husband's died. Her two sons have died. She comes back broken to Bethlehem. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, meaning bitter. Call me Mara, meaning bitter. And she complains there. She said, God Almighty has created this in my life. Now, at the end of the chapter, there's a different scene. The women say, Naomi has a son. And we'll get to that in a moment, but there's a great celebration. So chapter 1 is pretty rough. It's a complaint. Chapter 4 is a celebration. Now, years ago, I was... I learned something from Dr. Paul Turnier. He's written a lot of books. He was a psychiatrist. His parents both died when he was a small child. That shaped him enormously for life. And he gave his life really to helping others through psychiatry. A wise Christian man. And he wrote this, and it's in your worship folder. You might want to memorize it. He said, life is an odd mixture of unhoped-for victories and unexpected defeats. Victories, defeats. Lamar Odom is a superstar, 
I mean, what could be better than playing for the NBA? It'd be just great to play for it. But what could be better to be, than being a star in the NBA? What could be better than playing for the Lakers in the NBA? I mean, I'd say that's, there's a lot of victories there and a lot of money. So Lamar Odin certainly has his victories and celebrates, but recently he was interviewed and there was no smile on his face because he had suffered a crushing defeat. On June 28th, while Lamar was in New York visiting relatives, his six-and-a-half-month-old son, Jaden, died in his sleep in the crib. And Lamar came to talk to the reporters just a week or two ago with a Bible in his hand and talking about this this uh, defeat, this tragedy in his life. Life is an odd mixture of unhoped-for victories and unexpected defeats. And this morning, as we wrap up the book of Ruth, what I have said, first of all, life is a mixture of complaint and celebration. And I want to give you permission to complain to God, okay? And this morning, you may say, I feel like complaining, but you know, we're in church, and the pastor likes to be happy in church, and so I can't complain. This morning, I'm going to give you permission to complain. And take this out, jot down this, these notes, because you may want to use this later. Psalm 6. In Psalm 6, David is complaining, and here's the complaint. Have pity on me, O Lord, because I'm weak. Heal me, God, because my bones shake with terror. That's a complaint. Or... My soul has been deeply shaken with terror. But you, Lord, how long? Or in Psalm 13, that's another one, jot down Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or write down these, I'm not going to read from them, but Psalm 80, if you need more complaining, Psalm 84, Psalm 94, Psalm 89, rather, Psalm 94. Habakkuk 1.2 says, How long, O Lord, am I to cry for help, but you will not listen? I cry out to you. There's violence, yet you will not come to the rescue. Habakkuk 1.2. There are lots of complaining in the Bible. And this morning I want to say to you, if you're in a season of complaint, complain to God. Naomi did. Naomi did in Ruth 1. And this story that we've read is a very human story, and it's got its sense of tragedy, of complaint. And so this morning, just know that's okay, that life is an odd mixture of unhoped-for victories and unexpected defeats. Now, one thing as we go through life, whether we're celebrating or complaining, know this, God always works for good in our life. God always works for good. And I want to put a couple of scriptures back up on the board here um, that you can look at. In fact, let's read these together. God always works for good. This is from Romans, of course, the classic passage. Let's read. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And one more. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. God is always working for good in our lives. I was reading through uh, Edward F. Campbell Jr.'s commentary and read a little line there that has warmed my heart all week. And I want to share it with you. Maybe it will warm your heart for the next week. But we're talking about God's goodness. And go back to Ruth chapter 1. Naomi comes home. It's been ten bad years. 
She goes away from her home with this great sense of expectation, new place, new career, new family, and her husband dies, her daughter's married, her sons both die. She comes home. She says, call me Mara, she complains. And Campbell points out that all the while, and there was no way for Naomi to know this, but all the while, who is standing beside Naomi? Let me read the last line of the last lines of Ruth 1. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And he pointed out that though she couldn't know it, we know it now, we've read the whole book, but the solution of God was standing right beside her at her lowest hour. Ruth, her salvation. And I just point that out to you to chew on this week as you think about whether you're celebrating or complaining that God does have a solution. God loves you more than your mother loves you. The Bible says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that friend is Jesus Christ. And whether you acknowledge Christ or not, he's there for you. God loves you. God is always working for good in your life, always, because God is good. And as you read the story of Ruth, that just comes out. Now, Naomi couldn't know that in Ruth chapter 1, but right beside her was God's solution. It's beautiful. I want to read to you just a couple of scriptures that I've pulled out of Ephesians chapter 2 from the message paraphrase of the Bible to encourage you that God is good and God has already done good for you. Ephesians 2. It was only yesterday that you were outsiders to God's ways and had no idea of this. You didn't even know the first thing about how God works. You had not the faintest idea of Christ. Now, because Christ, dying his death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. Christ has brought us together through his death on the cross. Christ has treated us as equals and so made us all equals. Through Christ, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. The kingdom of faith is now your home country. Wow. All that because Christ loves us and gave himself for us. God is good. God is good. And I want to encourage you that way in that this morning. So, it's easy to me for me to say this last thing. God will give you wow moments. God's going to give you some wow moments. I don't know when. I want to I want to come now to the end of the uh, story here, chapter 4, and uh, just look at a couple of verses, verses 14 and 15. It's interesting. It does say that Boaz took Ruth, they made love, she had the baby. And then it comes back to these women. <laughs> the women. That's a loaded phrase, isn't it? I've got to be careful. I was just watching 2020 on the differences in men and women and all this stuff somebody was saying. I'll move back to the verse now. The women who, when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem after being gone, the women look at her and they're not even sure it's Naomi. The skin so soft doesn't work anymore. She looks twice her age. She's so wrinkled up with grief and, and sorrow. But now, sometime later, the women come back and they say, Bless the Lord, because the Lord hasn't left you after all, Naomi. And the, you need to picture there, here's Grandma Naomi holding this little infant in her lap. 
And the women say, you know, this little baby is going to be a nourisher of life. And they just say all these good things about the baby. And then they say, Ruth, and it's interesting in this passage, Ruth and Naomi never speak. The women say, Ruth, who God gave to you, is better than seven sons. How many sons had Naomi had? Two. They're gone. But Ruth is better than seven sons. And then the women name Obed. I don't understand that, but the women name Obed. And they talk about how the family is going to be built and hung together on Obed. And so the story wraps up with just this great praise festival, and you can only say, wow, God, it's amazing how this comes together. And as you think about your life, can't you look back and say at this point or that point, wow, it's amazing what God did in my life. Wow, God. Now, that's one ending of the story. There is another ending. And actually, I wish I was preaching a fifth week on this because we could go through that. But the very last thing in the book, of course, is this list of names, Perez. Go figure out where he came from. He had lots of sons. And then they give this list of names. And, of course, Boaz gives birth, he and Ruth, to Obed. And Obed grows up, has a child named Jesse. Jesse grows up. And how many sons do you think Jesse had? Just guess. I've already given you the number. Seven. Weird, huh? He has seven sons, and the last son is named David. You've heard of David, haven't you? The king of Israel. And where does Jesus come from? The line of David. Amazing little story, isn't it? Now, if you were to read in Matthew, which we may do in a few months at Advent time, if you were to read the opening lines of Matthew, there's the list of all these men. You know, so-and-so gave birth, and there's these long begats there. All these men are listed. In the lineage of Jesus Christ. Where did Jesus Christ come from? Well, they're trying to document he came from the line of David. But there are four women listed there. That's odd. Three of the four women, uh, I still haven't figured out how to say this. Um, They've all got a story. I'll just put it that way. You know, there are certain negative things you could say about these three women. They're all there listed in the genealogy of Jesus. But one woman just shines like a bright, shining, righteous star. Who is that one woman? Well, she's a foreigner, a Moabite, Ruth, right there. Wow, what a story. Only God could do that. So this morning as we conclude, I want to encourage you to think about your life and move on from Ruth now as you look back over your life. How has God been involved in your life? (laughs) I know how God's been involved in my life, getting me out of Stony Brook so I could meet my wife. How has God been involved in your life? Because he has been involved. And there will be those moments of uh, celebration, victory moments. There will be those moments of complaint and concern. But God is always working for good in your life. And when you look back, you'll be able to say, wow, 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 God. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. Lord, I want to thank you for this wonderful story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Thank you that you never left Naomi. Whether she knew it or not, you were there, and you're always with us. You never leave us. In fact, Jesus, you promised that you would never forsake us, that you would never leave us. We thank you, Lord, for your provision for Ruth and Naomi when they simply had not enough to eat and you provided grain from the field. 
You provided Boaz. Uh, You came into their lives. And, Lord, you've sent many people into our lives that nourished us, that raised us up, that corrected us, that taught us, that uh, men and women from whom we have learned so much. Wow. Thank you, Father, for providing for us. Most of all, you've provided Jesus, the forgiver of sin, the giver of eternal life, and we thank you. Thank you, God. Wow, God. Yay, God. And we pray all of this because we can pray to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.